Good morning. Join me in prayer, will you? Father, we turn to your word now and, and we hold it in our hands with gratitude and also with humility. Pray, Lord, that you would cause your word to be illuminated to our understanding, that we would receive it gladly, and that we would apply it in our own lives. Father, we desire to not only know more of your word, but to obey it more fully and completely, recognizing that it reveals your character to us and causes us to grow in Christ-likeness. We want to be like him. So help us, Lord, as we apply your word in our lives that you might receive the glory from lives touched and transformed by the power of your spirit as your word does its work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have uh, been studying the Sermon on the Mount the past few weeks, and uh, last week we looked at verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we saw there Jesus talking about his relationship to the Old Testament, and we looked at four things that he said. One, he said, uh, in verse 17, he said that he came to fulfill and not to abolish the law. He came to fill it up, to complete it. Uh, he also said then in verse 18 that the entire word of God, the whole of the Old Testament, is here to stay. And because of that, he said in verse 19 that we should not diminish it. And then maybe the, the, the most difficult thing that he said was in verse 20, where he said that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we talked then about how the scribes and Pharisees measured their righteousness. If ours is to exceed theirs, what was theirs like? Uh, theirs was a matter of externals. They identified 613 laws in the Old Testament and they tried their best to keep all of them. That's a tall order if we are to exceed that. But not only did they do that, they also built what they called a fence around the law, around those 613 additional rules that would keep them from even coming close to violating one of the 613. The problem is that it's impossible to keep all of those laws and it's impossible to keep all of the rules to keep us from violating those laws. So how could our righteousness ever hope to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Only one way. It's not through bigger fences further out, it's, it's through a changed heart. And that's what Jesus offered. Jesus lived a sinless life, kept all of God's law, and then took our penalty for violating it on himself, paid the price for our disobedience. And he offers us his righteousness as a gift of grace. He offers, in the words of Ezekiel, to remove our heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. So instead of putting up bigger fences further out, Jesus goes to the heart of the problem. Today, in verses 21 to 26, we come 
to the first of six what are called antitheses, statements where Jesus takes on the popular view of what righteousness looked like. And those six antitheses span the remainder of chapter 5. And they deal with the subjects of anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and dealing with our enemies. We need to keep in mind that what Jesus was doing was not building more fences further out, but addressing our problem at the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Change a heart and you change everything. Let's look at the text. We see the lesson, that the main lesson that Jesus has for us in verses 21 and 22, and the rest show some applications of that lesson. So let's take a look at 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus starts by saying, you have heard that it was said, and he's going to introduce each of the six antitheses the same way. You've heard this said, this is what the authorities are saying, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying as they quote other scribes and Pharisees, and then he lays out what it is they're saying. What they say in this case is, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In other words, we have a solution for murderers. Murderers stand before judgment. That's what we do with them. There are courts for that, and justice is done. So we have a solution for the problem of murder, say the Pharisees. And Jesus says that's not much of a solution at all. Verse 22, he completes the sentence and says, But I say to you, So you've heard what others are saying, I say to you. The scribes and the Pharisees quoted authorities, Jesus spoke with authority. And that's what astonished people by the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You see in those last verses of chapter 7, they were all astonished at his teaching because he spoke with authority, not as the teachers of the law. He didn't just quote authorities, he spoke with authority. So he says, but I say to you this, and and then he lays out three things that may look to us at first blush like he is building a fence around the law, the very thing the Pharisees did, saying, in essence, if you don't do these things, you won't come even close to murder. So he talks about getting angry. He says, um, anger will make you liable to judgment. Pharisees said, murder will make you liable to judgment. Jesus says, anger will as well. Liable, deserving of judgment. And what he's talking about here is local court. So Jesus is saying, not just murder will get you to judgment in court, anger will. Then he goes on to talk about showing contempt. And showing contempt will make you liable to the council. That would be the high court, the Sanhedrin. Now, this idea of showing contempt or or insulting a brother uh, is the Greek word raka. How many of you remember the old King James Version? If you say raka to your brother, you're in trouble, right? 
I remember being a kid and seeing that. Well, that was an invitation, wasn't it? I mean, we just kind of used the word a lot, you know. But we didn't know what it meant. And what it means in Aramaic is empty head. You empty head. Another commentator suggested it is the sound of clearing one's throat to spit. It is showing contempt to somebody based on our perception that they lack knowledge. And then Jesus goes on to talk about calling someone a fool. And he says that that will make you liable to God's court. That will make you liable to the hell of fire. Why such a serious consequence for calling someone a fool? Well, the word implies executing a moral judgment on somebody. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a, a situation in 2 Samuel chapter 16 where this shows up. Uh, Absalom has rebelled against his father David. David is fleeing Jerusalem. And this fellow Shimei shows up to harass David on his way. And he pelts him with dirt and rocks. And he shouts out to him, Get out, you worthless man. There it is. There it is. He has pronounced judgment on him. He has declared him worthless. That's the idea that Jesus is getting across here in calling someone a fool. Now, all three of these, getting angry, showing contempt, and calling someone a fool, imply looking down on someone else. Whether because they've let you down, whether you think they're stupid, whether you think they're worthless. But what we need to realize is that in telling us this, Jesus is not just building a bigger fence further out. What he's doing is he is addressing the heart where anger festers and grows, where it becomes murderous if it has the chance. Change the heart, and you change everything else. Now, why does that change everything? Well, when Jesus takes up residence in our heart, what he offers to put there is the fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you have a heart that is controlled by the spirit and not by the flesh. And the first of those qualities listed in the fruit of the spirit is love, and that's the Greek word agape that we've heard of, and Paul defines that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And that's what Jesus will put into a heart. And until we've dealt with the problem of the heart, we haven't dealt with the heart of the problem. So let me ask you, how's your heart this morning? How's your heart? Does it belong to Jesus? There's the starting point. Does it belong to him? Have you surrendered to him? Have you told him you want him to remove your heart of stone and replace it with a living, pulsing heart of flesh? 
Is it filled with his spirit? Is it evidencing the fruit of the spirit? Is that fruit growing in your heart? Is it full of agape love? Described in 1 Corinthians 13. And if your answer to any of those questions is no, then I would encourage you, humble yourself before him. Let your heart be broken. Let his spirit have full control. So the lesson in verses 21 and 22 is not just about bigger fences further out. It's about a changed heart. Jesus goes on then to give two applications. Application number one deals with priority. It's the case of the brother. Verses 23 and 24. Let's take a look at it. So, he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Notice it starts with the word so. So. He's drawing an inference from what he said in verses 21 and 22. So. We're talking about implications. And this implication has to do with an act of worship. He says, picture yourself at the altar. You're bringing a gift. So the setting is, is a worship. We might say, uh, you've just settled into your seat here at River Hills. The service is about to begin. And at that moment, you remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against him, but that he has something against you. In fact, in both of these applications, in this section we're going to look at, it's about somebody having something against us. The first is a brother who has something against you that you, you remember. The second is someone who wants to take you to court. He's obviously got something against you. So it's not the other way around. And notice that the brother is the same word as in verse 22. The person that you have shown anger toward, the person that you have called an empty head, the person that you have spoken down with contempt on, person you considered worthless. So let's just assume that it's the same person, just for argument's sake. Let's just imagine it's the same person. What are you thinking about that guy in verse 22? You're angry at him. You think he's a fool. You probably assigned a couple of titles to him, knucklehead or something else. Consider him pretty worthless. You probably think of how much better your life would be if he weren't in it. So you're sitting in your chair as the worship service begins, and he comes to mind. What are you thinking? What does his opinion matter? What does it matter that he's got something against me, right? And Jesus says it matters a great deal. Again, it's not a matter of building bigger fences further out around the law. It's a matter of addressing things at the heart. And you can say, well, I'm not murdering him. I'm not maligning him. I'm staying away from him. What more do you want? What Jesus wants is for our hearts to be right. And you know in that moment that it isn't. 
Does it surprise you that Jesus says this takes priority over your worship? Love for brother and love for God go together. Jesus put it this way in the great commandment, Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament hangs on these two. Love God, love people. John, the beloved apostle, put it this way in 1 John 4, uh, verses 20 and 21 that we saw earlier in the service. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How can you love God who you can't see if you can't love the brother who's right in front of you? Are you just pretending then to love God? What happens if we ignore the horizontal relationships in our life? Our vertical relationship, our relationship with God suffers. It won't be right while our hearts are wrong toward the people around us. And we can go through the motions and pretend we're good with God, but something in the back of our mind reminds us that we are not. What keeps us from setting those relationships right? I'll tell you, based on this passage, it's our low view of our brother or sister. If we valued them, we'd be concerned that they have something against us. But the truth is that our value for them looks a lot like verse 22. We're okay with remaining angry with them. We're okay thinking they're foolish and not worth the effort that we would have to expend to respond to them. And if that's the case, I pray that God will convict us and trouble us and bring us to repentance. That brother, that sister, was created in the image of God and has ultimate worth. We can't destroy that by how we treat them. That would be tantamount to murder. We need to take Jesus' words to heart instead of asking how the Pharisees could so consistently get it wrong We need to look in the mirror and make sure we're not guilty of the same thing. Jesus then goes on to his second application, dealing with intensity. It's the case of the accuser, verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. The accuser. You have been accused of something. Let's just pick a situation that could have happened in that day. Say someone said you took his grain to feed your donkey. You know you didn't, but you can't prove it. And he's got two friends who are willing to say they saw you do it. What do you do? He wants you to give him 10 bags of grain 
to make up for what he says you stole. You're incensed, right? You didn't do it. You're not going to give him 10 bags of grain. If you gave him 10 bags of grain, it would be like admitting you're guilty. You'd look like a thief. And now, he's taking you to court, where he and his two friends are going to get a judgment against you. And it's just going to get worse. So what do you do? You say, well, it's a matter of principle. I didn't steal the grain. I'm not going to pay him for grain I didn't steal. So you're on your way to court. And Jesus says you have an opportunity to do something about that situation before it gets to court. Jesus says you, you have opportunity to settle out of court. You have opportunity to get this done, but it's going to cost you. It's going to come at personal expense to you. But then again, it could keep things from escalating in intensity and spiraling right out of control. So what do you do? You ever been to court in a civil case? It's not a lot of fun, I can testify to that. I had a situation when I was in seminary. Uh, we looked at apartment rental costs back then and uh, we knew somebody who owned a mobile home instead and, and found it was a lot cheaper to pay lot rent than apartment rent. So we bought a mobile home. And we lived in it for uh, over three years. And then, during my final year of seminary, we had opportunity to sell it. And I thought, if I take the opportunity and sell it, I will be free to respond to a pastoral call if I get one. I don't have to worry about sticking around until this place sells. So I'm going to go ahead and, and sell it. So I talked to the park manager who did sales as well, and registered it, listed it with him. Uh, the opportunity that I had was to rent a house for that last year. It was a nice house. It, it was the house of Don Carson. Uh, so I almost rented Don Carson's house. But then I took out the old stubby pencil and did the math again and realized it would impoverish me to rent that house for a full year. And so I told the park manager, skip the listing, I'm not selling the mobile home, we'll just live out this last year here and uh, see if we can sell it when we're done. Okay, so we removed the listing, and about that time, another opportunity to rent came up, about the third of the cost of Carson's house. I thought, ooh, that's a good price. It would free me up, and somebody showed up who was interested in buying my mobile home. So I brought this buyer to the manager and said, I have a, a buyer for the mobile home. What did he do? He turned down my buyer because he didn't list him and wouldn't get a commission for it. And then he continued to turn down every buyer I brought to him, and I was absolutely stuck. So I tried to appeal to the manager, didn't get anywhere. I tried to appeal to the owner of the park, who was a Chicago businessman, and he wouldn't give me the time of day. And finally, I met a Christian attorney who said he would represent me. Well, we came to the day of our case. We're sitting out in the hallway outside the courtroom, and my attorney gets word that the owner wants to settle out of court. 
I was incensed. I had spent all of this money to try to get this thing uh, set right so that this guy couldn't do to others what he had done to me. And he wants to settle out of court. It would leave the unjust manager to do the same to other people. I said, it's a matter of principle. I don't want to settle out of court. My lawyer wisely said, you don't have enough money to get the outcome you're looking for. It's only going to increase in intensity. You've gotten what you wanted. Your buyer will be approved. Leave it at that. I felt like I was being wronged. But I swallowed my pride and my self-righteousness and settled out of court. Sometimes, these things come at personal expense to us. But what did Paul say in the matter of civil suits in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? In verse 7 he says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded than go to court in a civil court? Why not rather suffer the wrong yourself? You hear what he's saying? It's okay to be wronged. We have a bigger perspective. It's okay to be wronged. He'd rather be wronged than to bring Christ's name through the mud. Do you always have to be right? Do you always have to be vindicated? What does that say about your heart? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. There's one more thing about the Sermon on the Mount that I need to say at this point. And it's a theme that we're going to come back to again and again as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Not only is the Sermon on the Mount about addressing matters of the heart, but it's also focused on eternity. And that gives us perspective. And because we are called to be oriented on eternity, we can hold loosely to the things of earth that others cling to with their last grip. So we don't have to always get our way. We don't have to always be right. We don't always have to come out ahead. We can suffer loss sometimes, and it's okay. We don't look at this world the way a non-Christian does. This world is not all there is. We're oriented on eternity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. All of them left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So keep your eye on the greater gain. Stay focused on eternity. That's the perspective we need. David put it this way in Psalm 56. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? At the heart of the problem of anger is the problem of the heart. 
and it's a problem only Jesus can solve. More laws won't do it. Rules that keep us from violating the laws won't do it. Bigger fences further out won't do it. Only a changed heart will. And the good news this morning is that Jesus specializes in changing hearts. Amen? Maybe some of you here have never experienced getting a new heart. All you need to do is ask for it. Confess that your heart is stone. Ask him to replace it with a heart of flesh. He'll do it. Others of us who maybe got that heart transplant a long, long time ago have experienced some calcification. It happens. Hearts can grow hard and cold. Keith Green put it this way in a song. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And you know how I ought to be alive to you, dead to me. Is God calling you to do something about the condition of your heart this morning? Let's take a minute to respond to the Lord in prayer. Let's go to him now. Father, you search our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. And we readily admit to you that the heart of our problem is a problem of the heart. Father, I believe there may be some here who need that heart transplant where you remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And I pray by your grace you would do that right now. Let that person just call out to you and say, Lord, I recognize that I've got a problem I can't deal with. I've got a sin problem. And the only thing that's going to change that is a heart that comes from you. So would you put in me a heart to love you, to follow you, to grow in Christ-likeness, to share his love with others? And Father... For those of us here who have grown hard or cold of heart, I pray that you would soften our hearts to the ways of your Son, to the voice of your Spirit. Soften us up, Lord. Cause our hearts to be fresh and new like they were the day we first trusted you. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.